Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 20. Begin the reading in verse 1 and read through verse 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. You shall not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the voice of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, Speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, that you not sin. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Let your gospel, O Lord, come unto us, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Ten Commandments. Everyone here this morning has heard of them. Obviously, they were just read. But even if I hadn't just read our text from Exodus, it's a pretty safe bet that if you've been a believer for even a short amount of time or part of the church for a brief amount of time, then you're familiar with the Ten Commandments and know the basics of the story of Moses and Israel at Sinai, etc. Perhaps some of you have seen the Ten Commandments movie starring Charlton Heston as Moses and Yul Brenner as Pharaoh. Back in the early 2000s, Judge Roy Moore in Alabama made headlines when he commissioned a large monument of the Ten Commandments to be placed in the lobby of the state courthouse in Montgomery, Alabama. Before that, he had a reputation as the Ten Commandments judge after a legal battle over a small wooden display of the commandments that he hung in his Etowah County courtroom where he was a circuit judge in the 1990s. I recall Stephen Colbert, uh, Stephen Colbert segment when he was still with Jon Stewart on the, uh, the Daily Show, 
when he interviewed a conservative congressman who was advocating for the Ten Commandments in some capacity. And when Colbert asked the congressman if he could name the Ten Commandments, he was unable to do so. Colbert shook his hand and thanked him for being willing to break the Sabbath in order to do the interview. How much of, how much of that was to be taken seriously is, is hard to know. Um, and maybe it would be, it would make for, uh, interesting or revealing media to conduct one of those, um, street interviews asking people about the Ten Commandments, uh, especially among professing Christians. But the Ten Commandments have long had a significant place in the church. Uh, especially seen in any number of the Reformed catechisms, which include the Ten Commandments and exposition upon them. The Ten Commandments have been the subject of a great deal of scholarship, with entire books written about them. And we could easily spend ten or more weeks uh, right here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, and really never exhaust the text. I don't plan to do that, uh, though perhaps a more in-depth study of the Ten Commandments would be a fitting Sunday school class at some point or a sermon series of its own for another time. But at the outset of our study this morning, let's be clear that this event is unique, that it's the only one of its kind, that it is without like or equal. Of course, there will be other subsequent events in Scripture that will echo or reflect this moment, but none of them have all of the characteristics that are found here. Consider that this is the only time when all Israel is gathered into one place, men, women, children, and sojourners, mixed multitude that left Egypt with Israel, and God speaks to them directly. They hear His voice. There's no other assembly quite like this, as Israel is particularized as a nation, And so, the the giving of the Ten Commandments takes on a special status. And therefore, let's not take this event for granted. You know, in our being so accustomed to what takes place, let's not miss out on the importance and centrality of this moment, not only in Israel's history, but also in the history of the world, and of course, even in the Bible, the Scriptures themselves. And as we do so, I trust that we'll come to a further understanding of its continuing significance to us today and the bearing it has upon our lives. So what's an initial observation we need to make? Where does the text begin? And God spoke. God spoke this. His voice was heard. God, Elohim, spoke directly to the people when He gave the Ten Commandments and not through Moses the Mediator. Recall from our study in chapter 19 how Moses is clearly set forth as the mediator between Israel and Yahweh. And it goes back and forth between them and up and down the mountain some three times in that chapter alone, delivering messages from Yahweh to the people and from the people back to Yahweh. But that's not the case here. The Ten Commandments are not a mediated word. We might then naturally wonder, what did God's voice sound like? Well, a pretty good case can be that it sounded like thunder or that God's voice thundered the Ten Commandments. Back in chapter 19 and verse 16, when we read uh, thunders and lightnings, the word for thunders can also be rendered voices. The same word is used later and the voice uh, is used later um, to refer to the trumpet blast or trumpet voices. In 1919, it begins... And it was when the voice of the horn was going through and strengthening greatly, Moses spoke and God answered him 
in thunder or in a voice. Then if we jump to 2018, which we read just a moment ago, what do we, what do we, what do we find there? And all the people seeing the thunderings, the voices, and the lightnings, and the voice of the horn or the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and the people feared and trembled and stood from a distance. So God spoke, God thundered, and the people perceived God's voice as thunder, which doesn't mean it was inaudible. You know, compare this text with what we heard on Ash Wednesday from John chapter 12. Jesus is speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake not mine. Again, how did some people hear the voice? Well, as thunder. So God thunders at Sinai and it elicits a particular response, doesn't it? And yes, the people had drawn near, but then it may be, the text may be indicating that they moved farther away uh, because they were afraid. And then Moses asked, then they asked Moses to be their mediator. And again, I'm, I'm not sure um, we grasp how awesome and loud and fearsome uh, this moment was. Perhaps it's a rather weak analogy, um, but in the movie The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion come before the wizard for the first time, you know they're shaking in fear, their knees are knocking, their voices are trembling, and, and it's a quite a spectacle when they encounter the, you know, the floating head, the fire, the smoke, and the wizard's booming voice. And watching it as a kid, it was an impressive scene. Um, but the scene at Sinai, exponentially more so. And so God thundered all these words, and the people are afraid, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. As a bit of an aside, there are appropriate times when a parent, dad in particular, may need to thunder at his children. And that's okay. Not all the time. Uh, but occasionally when there needs to be a measure of healthy fear suitable to the situation. So God speaking in this impressive fashion directly to the people certainly causes the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. It causes them to stand out. What's something else that adds to this moment? Well, for the, for the next one, uh, we have to cheat a little bit and jump ahead to chapter 31 and verse 18 where we read, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The finger of God um, writing on tablets of stone is also unique. Now, is there another occasion when we can say that God wrote something directly? Well, we could probably argue well, the, the one occasion that comes the closest would be in Daniel 5, when the hand appears and writes on the wall opposite of the lampstand during Belshazzar's feast, and he becomes a limp-shaking mess. And maybe we could also make a case for the time in John 8 when Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Maybe he's even writing the same words from Daniel 5 um, in relation to the, what he's communicating to the people that have brought the woman to him that they say that they caught in adultery. But these tablets of stone, written by God himself... Again, not an everyday occurrence. 
sending, sending apart this event, conveying the significance of the giving of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. Uh, Decalogue, which simply means ten words, is another way of referring to the Ten Commandments. And then as the rest of Scripture essentially goes on to testify, these ten words serve as a summary of God's requirements. The Ten Commandments are given again in Deuteronomy 5 with a few changes that are fitting for Israel's new context. In Exodus 20, the reason for the Sabbath keeping is cited as God's creation of the world in six days and resting on the seventh, connecting back to Genesis, as it were. In Deuteronomy, the reason for keeping the Sabbath is the deliverance from Egypt. The, peop, uh, the possible reason for the change may be to serve as a reminder to this new generation of what God has done at the Exodus. Remember, they've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And there were children who were born and raised and are now grown up who weren't part of the Exodus. You know, 40 years is 40 years. So imagine, if you will, having lived in the wilderness since 1984, which was 40 years ago. Those born after that time or even in the last 20 years don't really have a point of reference for it themselves. You know, I remember 1984 as a good year. The Olympics were in L.A. and the U.S. dominated. Carl Lewis in track and field and Mary Lou Retton won the women's all-around goal in gymnastics. Reagan was president. Toys and cartoons were great. Hairstyles, not so much. But, but technology was really taking off and it was fun and exciting at times in, in many respects. Of course, now there's, there's retro this and that which recounts the 80s and there's school spirit days and roller skating parties that are 80s themed and so on. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy 5, there are several generations of Israelites that had no first-hand experience of the Exodus. And the generation that died, uh, that, there was the generation that, died, that did have that experience, died in the wilderness. So that may help us a little bit as to why the change in the fourth commandment between the two, as God renews covenant in Deuteronomy, as he gives this second law, which is what the name Deuteronomy means. And Yahweh expounds upon the implications and applications of the Decalogue as Israel prepares to enter the Promised Land. And I hope this kind of contrast and comparison also helps us to gain a little bit of perspective that even the Ten Commandments at Sinai need to be kept in context. And that the commandments given at the founding of a nation aren't identical to the commandments given when the nation takes over Middle Eastern real estate. Deuteronomy certainly builds upon Exodus, as it were, but these covenants have specific context that shouldn't be ignored. And then as we see the Ten Commandments further applied, particularly in the New Testament, then we do well to ask contextual questions that are appropriate, even as the Decalogue is set forth as what God requires. Now let's think about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We've noted this before, but Jesus is on a mountain instructing his disciples and those uh, gathered about him. And what does he expound upon? The law, the Ten Commandments. Later in chapter 19, Matthew recounts this story. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be mature, 
Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, what does Jesus quote to the man? Well, basically the Ten Commandments, but specifically the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and the fifth. And the summary statement of commands six through ten of loving neighbor as self. Now, is Jesus teaching salvation by works? No, of course not. Uh, but he is seeking to push this man to faith. There's only one who is good, namely God. And what's he prescribed for life? The Ten Commandments. And that life is pursued by faith in the God who has given the commands, to whom exclusive allegiance is owed, as delineated in commands one through four. But note again the use of the ten words as the summary of God's requirements, and this time by Jesus himself. Or consider the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Interestingly enough, one scholar notes that only commandments 5 through 10 are explicitly quoted in the New Testament. Uh, the reasons for this are interesting to think about, and it doesn't mean that the first four are invalidated, but perhaps it does indicate that with God coming in the person of Jesus Christ, that the first four take on a different shape than in Exodus 20 and Deut- or Deuteronomy 5. Or even consider Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 25, and going through uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, he's also expounding upon and applying the Ten Commandments to the saints at Ephesus. And in what section of Ephesians is this found? The second half, the imperative sections from chapters 4 through 6, which means what? That these are the commands uh, that are pursued, that are kept, because the people have already been saved, because they've been rescued from bondage and slavery to sin, because they've been exodists, as Paul has, uh, as he gloriously sings in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which is one long sentence in which the praise just pours out from the apostle's mouth. And as we established back in chapter 19, and Yahweh reiterates here in chapter 20, verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who caused you to come out from the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. Salvation comes first. Grace comes first. The law of the Ten Commandments were never given as a means to obtain salvation, but are the covenantal response for salvation. As one scholar puts it, grace and law belong together, for grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. And while this is a point I've jumped up and down uh, plenty of times in the past, I want to do so again so that we're not making false dichotomies in our minds between law and grace. You know, that's, that's Lutheran theology. It's not Reformed and certainly not uh, Calvinist. One of the texts that is sometimes cited when drawing a law gospel contrast is John chapter 1 and verse 17. And the New King James reads like this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When you read or hear this, you're inclined to think that John is making a strong contrast. But that's not the case. 
The word but, you may notice, is in italics, which means that it doesn't appear in the Greek text, but has been added to the text by the translators. And remember, every translation is an interpretation, and this one is slightly misleading. Uh, The ESV does a better job here. But verse 17 literally reads, For the law through Moses was given, the grace and the truth through Jesus Christ came. See, the adversative isn't there. John isn't making a contrast between two things that are mutually exclusive. Rather, the contrast is between something that is good and something that is better. Despite the abuse of the law by many of Jesus' contemporaries, it was originally and essentially a revelation of God's love, His covenant love, even as we see on Sinai. And John is rooting the incarnation in this truth, is why he can say in the previous verse that in this fullness we have received grace for grace. You know, what was incomplete in the revelation to Moses is now completed through Christ. What was seen only in part then is now seen in fullness. But again, the two aren't pitted against each other as some would contend. During my uh, first year of teaching omnibus at TCA, and it was in this classroom right over here, Uh, I had a a student who attended Our Savior Lutheran Church in Nashville, and she was thoroughly steeped in her Lutheranism. And on plenty of occasions, uh, she would make her arguments for how the the law works this way, but the gospel works this way. And and I'd push back time and time again with more covenantal thinking, and that salvation comes first, and the law was never, ever, ever, ever given as a means to salvation. And yes, there's a place for understanding the law in relation to exposing evil, saying where danger lies... Uh, but there's grace in that as well, isn't there? You know, when you go to some of the national parks, uh, particularly where there are wild animals, such as moose, moose or buffalo, you know, there are signs clearly posted to keep a healthy distance from the animals because uh, they're wild animals. Um, you know, don't pet the fluffy cows is one of the T-shirts you can get or whatever. And, and, and you can get hurt if you get too close or try to pet them. And... And plenty of people are foolish enough to attempt it to their own pain and suffering. But aren't the warning signs for your benefit, for your good? Or consider Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were given one prohibition. There was only one thing they weren't supposed to do. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that single prohibition actually directed them in the freedom that was theirs to eat of every other tree in the garden. Imagine, if you will, that there's a school located on a mountain. And the only place for the children to have a playground is next to a cliff with a sheer drop of 100 feet. This is just an analogy. Don't start asking questions as to why they didn't think to put the school somewhere else, etc. That's not the point. What is the school going to need to do in order to ensure that the children don't fall off the cliff? Well, they put up a fence. And does that fence then limit the children's ability to play on the playground? No, it actually encourages and enhances it because they know they can go up to the fence itself and not worry about falling over. They can run and play within the law of the playground with greater freedom. I have a vague recollection of a social experiment that was conducted when children were let outside for recess that if there wasn't a fence, they tended to huddle more toward the center of the playground 
But then when a fence was put up, they would spread out all the more and make use of all the space available to them and were on the edges up to the fence because the boundaries were clearly defined around them. You know, they had greater freedom on account of the fence. Well, we, we need to think of, of God's law and God's word along these lines. Still more, remember that two times in his letter, the Apostle James refers to the law of liberty. The first is in chapter 1 and verse 25 where he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the, the perfect law, the mature law, which gained even fuller expression, Lord Jesus, when we are doers of it, blessing results. One pastor makes this observation. James calls this the law of liberty because it is his belief that is through meditation on and acting in accordance with God's law that men and women may live in the freedom that God intended for them. It is only through obedience to the commands of Jesus that humanity will grow into maturity and image God in the fulfillment of his creation purpose. That, that pattern for obedience and blessing, for faith working through love, for working out our salvation, fear and trembling, is the life in the covenant, the life of obedience to God's word. And this is the life that's truly worth living. The life that is true life in God's world, in God's world that he has made. And furthermore, if the law was to be viewed as primarily negative, then we'd never have Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms, which is with its 176 verses arranged as an acrostic, according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, it's an alphabet of praise for the law of God. In verse 97, the psalmist declares, Oh, how I love your law it is my meditation all the day. Does our faith declare the same? Do we love God's word? Is it our meditation all the day? Or in verses 44 to 45, he writes, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Walking in a wide place, that, that denotes freedom. Still more, David would never write Psalm 19, which is a celebration of the law, which with such lines as, The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul, it supports life. Or, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know, honey is a characteristic of the promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. You can even make the case that honey is life-giving. Recall in 1 Samuel 14 how Saul foolishly made his army vow to fast until he was avenged on his enemies, the Philistines. And, and there's honey on the ground and honey dropping from the trees. You, you almost get this impression that they've entered a honey forest, but no one took any honey for fear of the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. 
you know, perhaps there's even a principle here that teaches us something about how we should be fighting against our enemies, receiving strength, and having brighter eyes on account of God's Word. And on account of the neglect of God's Word, we're enfeebled against our enemies. But then as we look at some of these initial attributes of this moment here on Sinai, finally let us consider that the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the character of God. They reveal to us who He, who he is and what He is like. And this being the case, then it further informs us of how we are to live, whom we've been created to be, whom humanity has been created to be, and especially in our present society that wants to call evil good and good evil and is seeking to turn the truth upside down and believe and promote lies. Consider, we have to be able to say what human nature is before we can say what human life ought to be. The Bible supplies the definition. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. This is the intensely practical importance of saying that each precept of the law expresses some principle, some essential feature of the divine nature. Each commandment represents some aspect of the likeness of God. And therefore, obedience to God's law gives expression to what we really are being in God's likeness, and results in our true freedom. And this has implications not only for us as individuals, but also for us as a church and even for societies and nations. All of this was confirmed by Jesus, the man, the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. Another moment, unlike any other in Israel's history, even in the history of the world. And what did he do? He spoke. Even as John begins his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. God's Word, all of it, is life. And it's the blueprint for true freedom and happiness. It makes us wise. It's cause for rejoicing. And in keeping it, there is great reward. Still more, part of Jesus' commission to the church is to disciple the nations to do what? Keep, observe, obey all that he's commanded. And why would he do that? Because his commands aren't just true for men and women here and there in their individuated piety. But prescribe what is good, what is the way of blessing for all of humanity created in his image. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which means he also takes an interest in nations and they are held accountable, the rulers in particular, for their rebellion against him, but prosper when they submit to his rule and obey his word. God knows what is best for nations, for societies. He made a nation out of Israel at Sinai, provided for them a blueprint for all of life in the Ten Commandments. He causes nations to rise and fall, using them for his purposes and for his people and kingdom as he's always done, even as evidence in the great empires of the ancient world, whether Egypt or Babylon, 
Persia, Greece, or Rome. Of course, that's still true today. And even as we as the church have been called to be a holy nation to the nations, let us serve as a model of keeping the commands of our king. God, God speaks by his word still. And so let us readily listen and meditate upon it. Indeed, let, it, let us savor it, even as we come to the Lord's table where we partake of the word made flesh. Let us taste and see that he is good, that we might become all the more like Christ as those who have been created anew in his image to grow and mature in further obedience to his gracious commands. Let us pray. O Lord, we give you thanks for your word. May we store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against you and delight in the way of your testimonies. May we meditate upon your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways, delighting in your statutes and not forgetting your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.